0: Did you know that Jesus was a foodie and not the kind of foodie that you know is looking forward to the opening of the latest greatest restaurants or spends all their money at Whole Foods on like turmeric not that kind of foodie but the kind of foodie that loved to leverage meals in order to teach us about the character and mission of God. In fact Food is mentioned 90 times in the gospels. Eating is mentioned 110 times. We cannot escape it. Jesus loved to eat. I'm glad he walked so much to burn off all those calories. He was a foodie. And that's what this whole series is about. We're just taking some snapshots from the life of Jesus as recorded in the four gospels, the biographies of Jesus that are included in the New Testament. And we're looking at ways in which Jesus leverages a meal in order to teach us about the character of God. We're so glad that you're here with us this first Sunday of Foodie. And if you have your Bible, I would love you to open it to John chapter two, and we will dive into kind of this first snapshot from the life of Jesus. In the words of the Princess Bride, Mowage. Marriage is what brings us together today. Now, if you've seen The Princess Bride, you're probably chuckling a little bit. If you've not seen The Princess Bride, two things. I'm sorry for the random joke. And number two, please watch The Princess Bride right after the service. It's worth your time this Sunday. So here we are at a wedding in John chapter 2. We'll pick it up from verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. In other words, marriage is what brings us together today. And the mother of Jesus was there, verse 2, and Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Uh, Stop there, because some of us might think, okay, well, it's a wedding. Is it really a meal? In fact, it was not just a meal, but a feast. Here's what happened in first century Jewish culture. Two individuals were paired together, marriages were arranged, and they were betrothed for a year. Uh, During that year, kind of protracted and prolonged uh, conversations and negotiations about what goods would be exchanged took place between the two families. Then there was a contract between those two parties. The marriage was consummated, and then they engaged in a week-long party, a five- to seven-day feast where there would be wine and meals and dancing. I mean, it was a party, and Jesus and his mother and his disciples were there. Now, uh, the likelihood is this is probably a relative of Jesus and his mother. The fact that they were both there along with all of his disciples indicates that that's likely the case. And here they are in this five to seven day feast or party, verse 3. Says, when the wine ran out. Oh, hold tight for a minute here. Because <laughs> in this culture and in this time and place, uh, we wouldn't kind of breathe in a big, you know, inhale and hold it when we hear those words, when the wine ran out. But in a shame honor culture, which first century Hebrew culture was, and at a wedding and in a context like this, If someone said the wine has run out, everybody would go, oh no. The groom is responsible for financing this five to seven day party. The groom was responsible for the food and the wine. And if the wine ran out, he would have been shamed. He would have been ostracized. He might even found it difficult to get jobs subsequent to the wedding. I mean, this was a really big deal that they've run out of wine. Let's keep going in verse 4. Excuse me, verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. I love that it's just a neutral statement of fact, right? She's not requested anything. She's not saying, Jesus, do something about this. She just says, they have no wine or they've run out. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? That's not the tone. I'm sorry. That's not the tone. The tone is actually very respectful here. In this day and age, if we called somebody woman, we're probably talking down to them. It might seem abrupt or curt. In first century Hebrew culture, it's not. In fact, this is the very same word that Jesus uses on the cross when he addresses his mother in his most difficult time, she stood by him. It's a term of endearment. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me or what business is this of mine? My hour has not yet come. In other words, I know, mom, that you're implying I should do something about this. You have a mom that makes passive aggressive comments like that. (laughs) You know, that's your third piece of pie. like. That's not a neutral statement of fact. She's indicating or implying something. That's your outfit choice for church today? Yeah, not a neutral statement of fact. Same thing here. And Jesus knows. He says, look, it's not time for me to go public with my identity and ministry yet. And it's as if Jesus' mother just looks at him with a deadpan face. She doesn't even respond to his statement. She just looks directly at the servants, verse 5, and says, do whatever he tells you. (laughs) Like any good mom would. Look, son, I know you're a rabbi. I know you have disciples now. And I can tell what's happening in my life and your life is a really, really, really big deal. But you're still my kid. So she looks at the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. Verse six. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And Jesus said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, of course they did, they were instructed by Jesus, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. Doesn't that make sense to you? You can't tell the difference between good wine and poor wine when you have drunk freely. It's a euphemism. I'm sure I don't have to explain that to you. But you have kept the good wine until now. Verse 11, we conclude the passage. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested His glory and His disciples believed in Him. Here's the quick story. Jesus, His mom and disciples are at a wedding. They run out of wine. Jesus' mother comes to Him and remarks that they've run out of wine, thus implying she'd like Jesus to do something about it. So Jesus instructs the servants to grab six stone water jars. We're gonna come back to those in a minute because they're important in the text. Take him to the master of the feast, draw some of the water out, and that water has now become wine. The master of the feast tastes it and says, oh my gosh, this is the best wine I've had. Now, verse 11 is really critical because John tells us this is the first of his signs. John's got some options uh, for the Greek word to use here to reference a miracle. He's got some options, but he deliberately uses the word sign. Why? Because signs point to something greater than themselves. The sign is not the ultimate thing. The sign points us to the ultimate thing. So Jesus, in this miracle, is pointing us to something greater and bigger than himself. Uh, D.A. Carson, a Bible scholar, writes this. He said, Jesus' miracles are never simply naked displays of power, still less neat conjuring tricks to impress the masses, but signs, significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith. In other words, This miracle is a sign that's pointing us to a deeper spiritual reality. Short question is this, where is this sign pointing us? And here's where this sign, this miracle points us to when it comes to spiritual realities. And if you're jotting down notes, I would just love you to write this down because this is the only point we're making today, that we're gleaning from this meal that Jesus shared. And it's simply this, Jesus destroys religion. (laughs) Jesus destroys religion. And you might be thinking, I thought I tuned into a church service today. He destroys religion. I thought he came to establish it or uphold it. No, friends, he came to destroy it. And in this very first miracle that Jesus performs, he demonstrates that he came to destroy religion now i think it's important that we define two words what it means to destroy something and what religion means let's start with religion the dictionary offers a couple of different definitions the first is that religion is the belief in and worship of a superhuman controlling power especially a personal god or gods did jesus come to destroy that No. Jesus, of course, uh, believed in God. Jesus was God in the flesh. He didn't come to destroy that. Uh, Definition two, a particular system of faith and worship. No, because Jesus maybe changes that or reforms that and and entered into a particular system of faith and worship in that he was Jewish. So he didn't come to destroy that. But check out definition three. I think this one's the most helpful. A pursuit or interest to which someone ascribes supreme importance. A pursuit or interest to which someone ascribes supreme importance. what had happened in the nation of Israel at this time is that supreme importance was not ascribed to God Himself. Rather, supreme importance was ascribed to the ceremonies, And rituals and dietary restrictions and observances related to the worship of God. And what happened, well, in Arthur W. Pink's words, A.W. Pink, he wrote this, Judaism existed as a religious system, but it ministered no comfort to the heart. It had degenerated into a cold, mechanical routine, utterly destitute of the joy of God. Uh, In the first century, Jewish worship had become rote and perfunctory and cold. Ceremonial observances had been elevated beyond sacrifice to and service of God, such that the nation of Israel was no longer worshiping God, but worshiping the ways in which they worship God. Let me say that again, the nation of Israel was no longer worshiping God, but they were worshiping the ways in which they worship God. And let's go back to our definition here, it was a pursuit or interest to which someone ascribes supreme importance. So in the nation of Israel at that time, God was not ascribed supreme importance, but those religious observances were, and religion happens when we make good things praiseworthy things. Religion happens when we make good things praiseworthy things. ritual observances and ceremonies and going to church every Sunday, personal holiness, those are all good things. But they're not praiseworthy. They're not worth our worship. They're not worth being venerated. Only God is worth our worship. So what did God think of what had happened in the nation of Israel at the time? Well, let's listen to God's own words as spoken through the prophet Isaiah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come up here before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings, Incense is an abomination to me, new moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and appointed feasts, my soul hates, they become a burden to me, and I am weary of bearing them. Wowza. And all of those things that God mentioned there are good things. Ritual observances, new moon and Sabbath, these are prescribed ceremonies and ritual and religious observances from the Old Testament, but God calls them iniquity. He says, my soul hates them. They become a burden to me. Why? Because the nation of Israel had made good things, praiseworthy things. they become religious. But what does that have to do with our text? Well, the six ceremonial washing jars hold the clue. If you recall, Jesus approaches six ceremonial washing jars, each holding 20 to 30 gallons apiece. These these stone jars were not subject to religious purification and Jewish purification rites. So if you used a clay jar to hold water for ritual purification, you had to destroy the clay jar after having used it. Not so with stone. You could use it over and over and over again. And these stone jars had to be hewn out of a single block of stone. Thus, they were very, very expensive and very, very difficult to produce. You would not have walked into a typical house and seen a very expensive stone jar, much less six of them, that hold 20 to 30 gallons of water apiece. So we know that this wedding celebration was in the home of someone very rich and someone very religious. The likelihood is Jesus is in the home of a Pharisee a religious leader, someone who had means and someone who was completely committed to religious observances. Jesus could have performed this miracle any way he wanted to, but he chooses the stone water jars used in ritual purification in order to perform this miracle. He's making a comment about religion, isn't he? And what's the comment? Well, that he'd like to destroy it. He'd like to destroy it. Let's keep looking at those six ceremonial washing jars. Uh, once again, John tells us that they hold about 20 gallons apiece. So that gives us you know, six jars times 20 gallons apiece. There's 120 gallons of water there. 120 gallons is 15,360 ounces. Stick with me on the math here. This is going to be fun. There are 25.4 ounces in a single bottle of wine. So take 15,360 ounces on the conservative side. Divided by 25.4 ounces in a given bottle of wine in modern times. And Jesus has transformed the amount or the equivalent of 604 bottles of wine. And that's the conservative estimate. If they were 30 gallons apiece, we're talking about just over 900 bottles of wine. And I don't know if you caught this, but he tells the servants to fill the stone water jars to the brim. And when that water had become wine and it was taken to the groom, both the groom and the master of the feast says, this is great. This is unbelievable wine. So it's not just the quantity that he makes, but it's the quality of the wine. And the wine is completely, or the water is completely and totally transformed. What Jesus is saying here is that he didn't come to nudge religion, or reform it, or adjust it, or reimagine it. He didn't come to question religion, or clear it up, or add to it. He didn't come to undermine it, or slowly dismantle it, and clearly not to praise it. Jesus came to blow religion out of the water, obliterate it, annihilate it, wipe it off the face of the earth. Jesus destroys religion. He destroys the cold, ritual observances that don't actually bring us to God. Jesus wants to introduce us to God himself. So the question we're left with here is why does this matter? And here's kind of where I wanna move, is that many of us that are listening here understand that we are saved by grace, through faith, it's a gift of God, not of ourselves, so know that so no one can boast. But we don't always realize once we're saved, that we've slipped back into being religious. And if you were a Pharisee in the first century and you were obeying 600 Old Testament laws and you had added 900 others yourself, that might be a little more easily recognizable. Or if the prophet Isaiah showed up and said, God hates what you're doing, that might be a little more easily recognizable. But so many of us don't understand that we have slipped back into religious patterns, that we've made good things, praiseworthy things, and that Jesus has come to rescue us out of that life. He's come to rescue us and transform our mindset into a grace-based mindset and not a religious-based mindset, just as he transformed water into wine. So here's the deal. Because it's not always easy to identify, it's insidious, and because it's not always easy to admit, I wanna offer you five ways that you can kind of measure. Five ways you might be able to tell that there are places in your life, maybe not completely, but little things here and there where you've slipped back into religion and you're not living in grace. Now, you might wanna buckle up (laughs) because a couple of things I'm about to say might be a little difficult to hear. Even a couple of stories I'm about to tell and comments that I'm about to make you might really struggle with. And the way in which I'm going to tell these stories and make these comments is really, again, it's an effort to to be the voice of God in your life today and say, God has grace for you and he has grace for others around you. This is the reason why Jesus did this very first miracle as a sign in Cana. So here we go. Five ways that you can tell you've slipped back into religion and you're not living under grace. Number one, if you just listen to that story and you're already trying to figure out how to make the wine non-alcoholic and the guests sober. (laughs) The guests were not sober, many of them at least. We're told that the guests had drunk freely. That's a euphemism for something. And there's so many folks that have said, well, Jesus made good wine, but it would have been non-alcoholic wine. Or Jesus didn't support, you know, drinking to inebriation. Of course he didn't do that, but he was there. And the wine he made would have been alcoholic. If it wasn't alcoholic, the groom and the master of ceremonies would have known full well, this is not good wine. In fact, it's not wine at all. Jesus didn't just trick them. He actually made wine. Why? because He was gracious, because it wasn't about religious observances for Him. It wasn't about obedience in order to impress God. It was about God's unending and unconditional grace. Number two, you may be a little too religious. If you're miserable, If you find that your walk with God is a shackles, if you find that you are sad and angry a lot, if you look around at other people who find joy and it, and it, and it brings you anger or disgust or negative emotions, if you're miserable... Probably because you're religious and not grace-based. James Montgomery Boyce, a Bible commentator, once wrote this. I love this. And he wrote it about this particular passage, John chapter 2. He said, some Christians go around with grim looks and a long face. And if they ever find themselves in the company of someone else who's having a good time, they immediately suspect that the cause of the fun is either illegal, immoral, or fattening. (laughs) I love that. The reality is in this passage, Jesus, his disciples, his mother, they were celebrating, they were feasting, they were having a good time. And if you find yourself a joyless Christian, it's likely because religion has become a shackles for you. Number three, if you love the phrase, God loves you, but. God loves you, but. You you need to read your Bible more. God loves you, but. You probably need to attend church more. God loves you, but he's not cool with this you know, smoking thing. God loves you, but he, he doesn't support transgender folks. God loves you, but you know, that vision of marriage is not biblical. God loves you, but some of those things may be good and okay and healthy things to say, but God loves you, but is never an okay thing to say. God loves you unconditionally without any strings attached. He loves me, too. He loves all those you come into contact with. And there's all sorts of places in the Scripture where religion gets in the way of God's love. In the case of the Good Samaritan, a man's beaten, left for dead on the side of the road, and two religious leaders pass by him on the other side because they knew if they touched something dead, then they would defile themselves and not be able to carry out their religious duty. This man, in fact, was not dead, he was near dead, and so they leave him for dead in order to not defile themselves. Religion got in the way of compassion. But in the case of water into wine, religion doesn't get in the way of compassion. Jesus wants to prevent this groom from shame. And he knows that the people in the room are loved by God and loved by him, so he comes alongside and performs a miracle. In fact, Jesus did so many miracles like this. He had so many meals like this that, you know, he was called a glutton and a drunkard. I mean, these are the type of people God or Jesus hung out with. Why? Because God loves them, period. Number four, you might be a little too religious if you don't get invited to this kind of stuff. The very beginning of the passage tells us that Jesus, his disciples, and his mother were invited to this wedding feast. And they were invited to a wedding feast where people were going to be inebriated and not on accident, many of them on purpose but because Jesus was a gracious man and a compassionate man, because he knew that religion wasn't the way to God. Rather, grace and grace alone was the way to God. He comes, he hangs out, he has a great time, and he hangs out with a bunch of pulp po- folks who were partying. Jesus partied with sinners. Ha! He didn't sin with partiers, but he partied with sinners. And this is because of grace. Now. Recently, uh, there were some folks over at my house, none of whom are churched. A couple of those folks know what I do for a living. Uh, they all know my convictions and my faith background, but they don't know what I do for a job. They're, they're just friends. They become friends over time here in Toronto. And we had a meal together and we were outside in my backyard around a fire. And as we were just kind of hanging and talking, we were kind of strumming guitars. In the course of about 12 to 15 seconds, about three different ones of them lit up a, a joint, a, a marijuana. I don't know if you're familiar with that. And in that moment, I was faced with a choice. It's my house. I don't partake. It just to be straight up with you, I've never smoked weed. I have no idea what it even feels like or tastes like. I mean, I can smell it, but that's about it. Never touched this stuff. Never done any drug in my life. But, but here I have the opportunity now to say, Am I going to be gracious and stay and play guitar and hang and have a good time and and, and stand by my conviction? Or am I going to be religious and usher them out of my house? I decided to be gracious. Now, for some of you, that might not be the right situation for you to be in based on kind of where you're at in life and all that stuff. And I get that. But for some of us, we're not even invited to those things. We certainly wouldn't hang out and stay. So we're sitting around the fire, a friend of mine who knows what I do for a job leans over and whispers, hey, is this the right time to tell everybody what you do for a living? And I said, I don't know, maybe. And all of a sudden she just blurts out as loud as she can, Lucas is a preacher. (laughs) You should have seen the looks on their faces. It made me so happy. They were just mortified, you know, just the middle of the, you know, and I said, listen, everybody relax. It's your choice, it's not mine. Right? that's I don't partake, I don't participate, but you're welcome in my home because God loves you. Within the next 30 minutes, three of the individuals that were sitting at that fire came up to me. One said, how do you know for sure there's a God because I'd like to know Him? And the other two says, when does your church meet? Because I'd like to be a part of it. Friends, I share that story reluctantly, to be honest with you. I'm a little bit afraid. I'm afraid that I might get judged for that choice. Afraid that somebody might get angry and write me a, you know, angry little email. Afraid that we might go tell the elders, you know, what's goes on in my backyard. It happened one time by the way and I didn't invite it, but whatever. I'm I'm a little bit scared. But to be honest with you, Jesus hung out with those types of folks so often. He found himself at these meals and at these tables so often. He was called a glutton and a drunkard. And if we're going to be like Jesus, we got to stand by our convictions and yet get invited to these types of scenarios because we're people of grace. Finally. If you see sinful behavior as the disease and not the symptom, you might be falling back into religion. So here's the deal. Sinful behavior is not the disease. Brokenness and disillusionment and separation from God is the disease. And it results in all types of sinful, unhealthy and destructive behaviors. I love the fact that Jesus stays in this moment because he wants to address the core issue, the disease, and that's disillusionment from God. And the only antidote to that disease is grace. It's not religion. Would we start judging people for their behaviors, coming to conclusions and Assuming we know about their relationship with God and, and whether or not they're close to Him or far from Him or what He's doing in their life. When we start to say things like, God loves you, but, right? When we see sinful behavior as the symptom or as the disease and not the symptom, we've fallen back into religion. In this very first miracle of Jesus over the chronology of his ministry, when he turns water into wine, he's doing it to destroy religion. This is a sign that points to his power. This is a sign that points to his grace. This is a sign that points to his never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love that trumps religion. And it's a reminder to you and to me that our religion, when we make good things, venerable things, when we make good things worthy of worship, we've shackled ourselves and Jesus invites us to live in the freedom of grace. I want to conclude this way, and it's from John chapter 1, verse 16, right before Jesus turns water into wine. John writes this, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace in place of what? in place of grace already given. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given.